0: Can you hear me? Yeah, if you can be a slightly more centered. Uh, No, because what you can't see is there's a wall. Oh, okay. (laughs) That works then. All right. That's about as far as I can go. That's fine. That works. Okay, and so we're going to mute you and stop your video. And when we start at 11, you'll just have to click um, accept start video. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? I, yes. Okay. All right. See you in a few minutes. All right, I'm opening it up to attendees.
1: we'll be getting going in a second. We will be starting in a minute. We're waiting for Senator Klobuchar to join us.
2: Hello, can you hear me, Larry?
1: I can, thank you so much.
2: Very good, well, thank you.
1: We've got a special welcomer here for you today.
2: I heard that. I heard that. Uh, Joan you doing Gable. doing OK? Are you wearing your Zoom outfit with, like, sweatpants underneath your suit? Hi, my V. I'd
1: like to welcome Joan Gable, president, University of Minnesota.
2: Oh, hi, President Gable. Hello, everybody. Gable.
0: Hello, Senator. How are you? Very Great good. Great to see you. Looking very well. Um, I am absolutely honored to be the one to kick off today's uh, event. I'll just share a little personal story. So, um, you know, I've been in this position for nine months now, but I was announced in the position, as you all may recall, several months before that. And literally, one of the first three people I heard from was Senator Amy Klobuchar, who sent me the nicest note. Um, to welcome me to the state and welcome me to advocating on behalf of the state. And she has very quickly become my role model for how to do that, how to do that selflessly, how to do that with humor, how to do that strategically. Uh, As we all know, she's a tireless advocate for the state, but I think she gets, and one of the reasons why we all admire her so much is that what happens here, if it happens well, has a national and global impact. And I think she's been A tremendous voice for that, for how doing things well in Minnesota means that we serve the whole country and the whole world at the best possible levels. And I know I speak for all of us when I say she has made us so proud in the campaign, so honored to support her in that process, and continues to make us proud in this just crazy time we find ourselves in. Um, as it has affected us as a country, as it has affected her family specifically. And so I'm very pleased to be able to kick it off and I will turn it over to Larry and the Senator for their remarks. Thank you all very much.
2: Uh, and thank you, uh, President Gable. I know what challenges uh, this is has presented not only for our state, our country, for every s- person in our state, but also the University of Minnesota. And we care so much about the university. As you know, my husband's a proud graduate uh, as well as my dad and um, we're looking forward to helping you in the months to come because we must keep this university as strong as it is. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Senator.
1: Okay. And I want to welcome everyone joining us. Um, this is part of a series. The Humphrey school has been convening for some time. We usually do it in person and Senator Klobuchar has joined us many times at the Humphrey school, which is the school of public affairs, the university, of Minnesota. I'm Larry Jacobs. I am a professor at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School and the director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, which is the organizer of today's event. Um, Senator Cloverstar, how's your husband doing? Let's start off. Well,
2: he's doing one. really well. Maybe I can get him to come down here for a second and wave. We'll see. Uh, and uh, he has, you know, got uh, the coronavirus Uh, in a very bad way. Uh, He smartly, he teaches like you do. And he, the day he started feeling sick, it was the one of the last days they had a faculty meeting and he decided not to go. I think a lot of other people would have gotten sick at his school where he teaches. And so he just started being alone in their apartment. I was in Minnesota every day to have a temperature and it was over a hundred every single day. And then uh, finally uh, he started coughing up blood and he ended up going into the emergency room. And that's when they found out he had really low oxygen and pneumonia. And so he was in the hospital five days with really 70% oxygen, which is bad. And it suddenly turned around as some of these cases do on about the fourth day. And then he um, went back and he's doing better every single day. And again, he's really proud of um, being a great graduate of the University of Minnesota. It's a big part of his life. He's always wearing... Um, university of Minnesota sweatshirts. If we're really lucky, maybe I'll get him to come down here in some garb or something. Uh, and um, has taught uh, some classes as well here and there at the university. So that's where we are now. And having personally experienced it, having waited six days for the test, having seen what it's like to not be able to um, hold the hand of the person you love and hug the healthcare workers that take care of them. Uh, it gave me a whole different perspective on this uh, what so many people are experiencing right now, and why we have to zealously look for a vaccine and zealously get more testing in place, um, not only for people's health but for our economy, and get the right uh, gear uh, to the healthcare workers. Okay, I think he's lurking. I'm going to have him say hello. Here he is, and look at the shirt he's wearing. Here he
1: is.
2: Hi. See him. Hey, John. How's how are you? Are you? <laughs> good. Good.
1: It's good to see you. Well.
2: And look at what he's wearing, he's wearing his...
1: Yeah, I've got my, I'm a lum here, you know, so <laughs> gopher all the way, so go how go are f- you? Good, we're glad to see you and um, we send our best from Minnesota. Thank you very much.
2: Yeah, he was, um, we were talking about um, how hard it is uh, that you can't uh, see the person that you love when they're in there, but also one of the cool things about John Um, is that he now has these superpowers with his uh, immunities. So he gets to go out to the grocery store, (laughs) but he also will be able to give blood.
1: Yeah, but it was a, you know, it's a weeks long recovery process for sure. So
2: yeah, but but he, they're, they're looking at their Mayo and the university are researching things. And this uh, light is how you can give blood once you have the immunities. And so that'll be a silver lining, I guess.
1: You're going to be a valuable friend, John. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Enjoy. All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. And Senator Klobuchar, we have a good friend of yours who's joining us. Mr. Mondale,
2: are you on the phone? Really?
1: Yeah, I'm on the phone. <laughs> and I'm trying to
3: talk.
2: Um, we hear you with, well.
3: Amy, I, before we get into this program, I wanted to say how much I admire what you've been through the last several months. You, you're a, 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 your campaign was wonderful. You never had a down day. I watched most of those debates. You were always the best participant, strongest participant, and I'm honored to be on the same phone call with you.
2: Oh, well, thank you, Mr. Vice President. And you were always so encouraging from the beginning of the campaign, uh, when I I will never forget calling him in the morning for, uh, good luck. And the blizzard was starting to come in. The snow's coming down. <laughs> and uh, he answers the phone. He may have been in Florida at the time. We'll just let that go. But he answers. Yeah. Uh,
3: just keep right on like, and talking.
2: Yeah, yeah. Klobuchar headquarters, uh, Florida branch, Mondale speaking. And then he <laughs> says to me, it's snowing up there. You're not going to do that outside. And I go, yeah, that's our only platform, that's our only stage. But he's given yeah. me great he gave me great advice uh, throughout the thing, and I think it made our campaign uh, so much stronger in having such a wonderful mentor to know how to begin it, but also how to end it. Um, and I felt good about our campaign from the joyful beginning to the joyful end when I endorsed the vice president uh, at that incredible rally in Dallas. So. Um, thank you very much. A-
3: Amy, we're proud of you. You're Minnesota's best. And we uh, we applaud the results, not the, the results, but your performance that uh, was, were so strong.
1: Mr. Bondi, I want to start out with a question to you about your experience. You, of course, broke the gender barrier when you um, selected Geraldine Ferraro as your running mate in 1984. And then we had uh, you know, several other women. Uh, uh, John McCain selected a woman as a running mate, and obviously Hillary Clinton was the uh, Democratic Party candidate in 2016. But it's been 36 years since you chose Geraldine Farrar. Are you surprised that there's not been more progress uh, and success with women running uh, for president? Well,
3: I'm I'm going to say something, and then and I'll probably stop talking. But I what worried me about that race was that it, the normal way that Minnesota's vote was altered, and big parts of the state voted against me that had always voted for me, and then. Um, uh, with this uh, 2016 race, Hillary, I was I was really surprised by how um, sexist I thought some of the voters were. Uh, I, I hope I'm wrong. I, I'm glad to be uh, declared wrong here, but I still think when people come and think about voting for president. Uh, wrongly, a lot of people can't bring themselves to vote for a woman. Um, Now, now I hope that's wrong. I went through this with Kennedy years ago when people said, well, we can't have a Catholic president. Well, we had one that worked out fine. Nobody was hurt. And if we'd have this experience with a good woman uh, president, I think we'd feel the same way once we'd had the experience. But I just say that because it's been a sort of a dispiriting experience. Yeah.
1: Senator Klobuchar, were you a bit surprised? You were quite vocal during the uh, the debates and in between them, what, what you saw as kind of a higher standard for women.
2: Well, first of all, we had some great women running and um, I still think that from the minute we had that first debate, we literally doubled. On the first night, there were two debates at the beginning, of course. In one night, we doubled the number of women who had ever been on a primary stage for a democratic presidential debate. Um, And I think the fact that we were different from different parts of the country, different political views, different backgrounds, uh, I think it was a, a very, very good thing. And so many people over the course of the year watched those debates and got to know us. Um, So I think in the end, uh, while we were not uh, the ones that were uh, picked by the Democratic primary electorate, um, I still think it was a very positive thing to have that many women running. Uh, I also think that, yes, um, when you look at um, the number of women, as I said on the debate stage, uh, if it was all fair, we could play a game called name your favorite woman president. Uh, But that's a game we can't play because there's never been one. And when you look at, uh, and I've studied this in the Senate with so many of my friends, Democrats and Republicans, uh, and there's actually been a study out of Harvard, the University of Minnesota of the East uh, that, that uh, supports this. And that is that the women senators uh, work together better, they pass bills together more, uh, they um, tend to be um, very focused on accountability. And someone once said, and I don't agree with the first part of this, I agree with the second, uh, that women candidates uh, speak softly, I don't agree with that, and carry a big statistic. Um, and I think what was meant by that was this sense of accountability. So um, I still think uh, that we advance the cause greatly. You've seen huge strides for women elected uh, to mayor's offices and uh, now some governors and then certainly in the Congress, uh, where we're now up over 25%. um, And that's a big shift from where we even were five years ago.
1: Mr. Mondale, um, you were uh, obviously uh, twice involved in a vice presidential selection process, Uh, once when you were chosen by Jimmy Carter, and then in 84, when you ran your own. Put us into Joe Biden's circle right now. What are they thinking about? What are some of the considerations that uh, they're
3: weighing? Well, I was glad to see him say the other day publicly that he was gonna pick a woman inmate. I think that's the way it should be now. Uh, Later, I don't know, but it it put the focus on the process of picking the best woman uh, candidate and uh, picking one that would help biden win the presidency and they're not talking about this much but i wish they would about the help a uh, president needs from a vice president um it's not just getting elected oh you don't do that you don't have anything it's also governing and um so i hope i hope this isn't needed well i think i hope it is it's the beginning of a serious process of learning and deciding who could best help uh, the president govern, get elected and then govern.
1: So, uh, Mr. manda you alluded to this, but there's two eras of vice presidential uh, candidates. There's the before Mondal era, in which uh, the vice president was as as uh, one of your predecessors put it, standby material. Yeah, um, And then there's the Mondale and on with Democrat and Republican, in which the vice president uh, becomes a critical part of the process for um, uh, governing. And it's, it, it varied across presidents. Um, uh, Amy Klobuchar, what do you see as the critical qualifications um, that um, that a vice president would bring uh, to a Biden uh, presidency if they were to get elected?
2: Well, I think that, um, first of all, you have to have uh, someone, and the vice president, um, Vice President Mondale, knows this more than anyone that is actually going to govern and help govern. And I think that Vice President Biden has a lot of great people to pick from, and um, I think he will be. Uh, the one that will ultimately know the best. He, uh, like uh, Vice President Mondale, was a very good vice president to Barack Obama, and he'll make that decision based on uh, who he thinks is best. Um, And I think that's what's the most important, someone he's comfortable with, someone who can help him campaign, can help him win. Um, So that's where I am on that. There's many good people to pick from.
1: Um, Senator Klobuchar, you've been... Uh, one of the leaders in Congress and uh, a point person in the Senate on elections. And you've been particularly concerned about elections during a pandemic. Uh, You were making the argument for substantial expenditures recommended by experts in the election field so that we could survive the pandemic and have a robust election. Where are we, in your view, in terms of creating an election process for november that's both safe and vigorous
2: i'm leading the bill in the senate uh, that would make that happen uh, with senator ron wyden and uh, we anyone that saw the photos and the videos of those lines in wisconsin where voters were standing in line wearing masks when they didn't have to because in this case the republican legislature wouldn't give the governor a delay in the election, uh, and simply to exercise their right to vote, they were literally risking their own lives. Uh, To me, it was an absolute outrage, so many of them African American, uh, that were standing in those lines. Uh, To make matters worse, they didn't even allow, uh, because of a court decision, uh, the time to be extended to get absentee ballots. When you look at the right to vote, it is fundamental in this country. And there is a way to fix this. That is by allowing more extensive uh, voting at home and mail-in ballots. Um, that's what our bill does. We've got $400 million set aside in the last package, uh, and I'm working on even more. This afternoon, I am actually uh, doing a call with Republican and Democratic Secretary of State from all over the country who support getting this funding. And so that will be key. The other thing to remember, and the estimates are over 2 billion. The other thing to remember is that we also need to make it easier for people to go to the polls. Only 25% of Americans vote by mail right now. Some states, it's really high, like uh, Oregon, Colorado, Utah. It's red and blue states, Arizona, Nevada. Uh, But in other states, it's at 2 to 3 to 4%. And so we understand that not everyone's going to vote by mail. And that's why part of this funding would be to get polls open for 20 days in advance all over the country so people don't congregate. And then also training a whole new generation of poll workers who won't be as vulnerable to this disease. We don't know where the disease and the virus is going to be by November, but we do know by most estimates unless there is something um, cataclysmically good happens, uh, it will still be around in some form. And so the hope here is that we get our act together, we get the money out, we work with Secretary of State, and we do what we can to set some standards for the country. And that's what we're trying to do. The thought that Donald Trump is sitting in the White House ordering a mail-in ballot for himself and his wife, that's what they've just done, from Palm Beach, While that nurse in Milwaukee is standing in line with a mask on just to vote is something and an image that I hope Americans won't forget. He should be strongly supporting Republican and Democratic Secretary of State who want to vastly expand vote at home.
1: Um, As you saw yesterday, the president came out and said that uh, vote by mail is an invitation for fraud and cheating. And that if, if, if vote by mail or vote by home, were to be adopted more widely, Republicans would never win an election again.
2: You know, first of all, when you look at the stats and you're a great uh, professor and scholar of political science, it's really interesting. The vote-by-mail states, as I mentioned, the high-level vote-by-mail ones are all over the place. Oregon, I guess, is a more blue state. Colorado is clearly a purple state. They have one Democratic, one Republican senator. Um, The state of Utah is known as Pretty Red, so I guess when he's talking about fraud, he's criticizing his own voters uh, in what has been a predominantly Republican state, maybe not this time. Uh, Arizona and Nevada are not, they're over, I think, 80% uh, vote by mail. Minnesota's like at 25, we're in the middle. Uh, And uh, two million people in the military cast their votes by mail. Uh, So I don't know what he is talking about uh, when it's been very successful in many states. uh, And at least you have a backup or an actual paper ballot uh, when people vote by mail. And so you actually eliminate some of the hacking concerns.
1: Do you find much support among your colleagues on the other side of the aisle for uh, vote by mail and other steps to try to make voting safe and vigorous in November?
2: Uh, Yes, there have been a number of Republicans that have supported this funding. We wouldn't have been able to get $400 million in the last bill if that wasn't the case. Now, some of them do not support uh, some of the provisions that we think would be most helpful for the country, which is having a standard during the pandemic of the 20 days early voting, making sure that it's easy to register to get those ballots and the like. But individual states can do that as well, in addition to us continuing to try to do it on a federal level.
1: So you're kind of hoping that the states will do what they can on their own, and then the federal government is coming in and as a partner. The
2: federal government can come in with funding, and hopefully we could get a few of these standards into law, given what a fiasco uh, we just saw in Wisconsin. So we are continuing to try that. But at the same time, the states, the states, Uh, Many of them are looking at their own rules, including in Minnesota. 12 states require a witness to get a um, mail-in ballot, and six of those states, half of them, require two witnesses or a notary. I heard this story the other day of someone trying to get their absentee ballot while they were in a hospital room with coronavirus, and they had to have a notary outside of a window. Like, this is just Mm -hmm. not where we should be during a pandemic. It's I funny, but in know. a very macabre way, it's ridiculous. And so um, those states, hopefully their secretary of states will be looking at making changes to the rules and just making it easier. Some states are almost all mail-in ballot. Everyone, that's what Oregon's like. Um, so, uh, but we have to be cognizant of the fact that you still have to have polls open because people with disabilities, many of them can't do the mail-in ballots. Um, people are not in the whole country going to make that transition, the 75% that vote by polls in just eight months. And so you've got to expand the mail in ballots greatly, but still make sure the polling is as safe as possible. And early voting is the safest way to do it because you get less people on any single moment.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Mondale, I want to turn to another topic that you've worked on uh, very Talk hard. To Amy, just-
3: Yes, sir. Can I talk to Amy just a second about a question?
2: Oh, okay. This will be harder than we, any of Larry's questions. Yeah,
3: better, no, we we have a I think maybe the best state administration of elections and and our the uh, Steve
2: Steve Simon, uh, our great secretary. Steve
3: Simon, yeah. Steve Simon is magnificent, and he's been uh, head of our state election system for about a decade. And he works closely with Republicans. He said, I, I don't want anything that hasn't been approved by Republicans. And I think, I think we've done a very fine job there. And am I not right that Steve is one of the most um, persuasive, uh, impressive members of the state structure and could could we hope for more uh momentum coming out at the state level
2: Mm -hmm.
3: than than we we've been used to as a result of that
2: yes and he's actually going to be on our call today with 10 leaders secretary of states including by the way the republican secretary of state in washington state and in uh west virginia and other places so the secretary of states are on a common ground uh, when it comes to expanding vote by mail and getting more funding. Steve's actually trying to make it uh, even more prevalent in our state. And the vice president is right. We have the highest voter turnout in the country uh, last time. And we've always done it as a combination of male votes, uh, not male, female, vote by male votes, um, as well as... Um, uh, the early voting, and then the voting same day registration, the day of the polls. So, you know, we hope things are going to be better by then, but Minnesotans may have to adjust and um, hopefully vote by mail more and do the early voting more just so that we can make it as safe as possible. And I know that's, I've talked to Steve and we're working together on this.
1: And this is, of course, a huge, Thank challenge. You. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a huge challenge for all secretaries of state Uh, because the transition from vote in person to vote by mail is complicated.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Washington State, which is entirely vote by mail, took five years. Yeah. Um, So this is a big job. And I know you're trying to help the states and give them some latitude to work in. But
2: yeah, um, that's why we have to be very um, honest and practical about it. Um, But at the same time, um, voters want to vote and we've got to give them options here.
1: Senator Klobuchar, I want to shift to another topic. Um, Obviously, uh, Congress has passed three stimulus bills related to coronavirus. There's a fourth that's being talked about. Um, And one of the concerns, and I think this is not partisan, is about accountability. Senator Grassley has been uh, one of the most vocal um, members of Congress in terms of the Inspector General um, process for a number of years. He's expressed concern about the uh, treatment inspectors general by uh, President Trump. Um, As as Congress and as you are looking at the possibly fourth coronavirus stimulus package, is there a tension on accountability?
2: Well, of course there is. There's a lot of money going out and it needs to go out to everything from our local governments to hospitals and to first responders, those on the front line. Um, to uh, the work that's being done with small businesses. There has to be accountability when trillions of dollars is going out. And we worked very hard uh, to make the bills so much stronger, not only for the frontline workers and small businesses, but also to have more accountability built in. And that accountability uh, rests in Congress, yes, but it also rests with these inspector generals. So something that may have gotten lost in the news for some people because everyone, is rightfully focused on their own survival right now. But something that may have gotten lost in the news is that uh, Glenn Fine, uh, who is well respected inspector general, worked through the Bush administration, the Obama administration, now the Trump administration, uh, headed up uh, as the head inspector general um, at various times for the Justice Department and the Defense Department. <laughs> Those are huge jobs where he's analyzing, providing oversight of spending both administrations. He was the one that all the inspector generals, when they met, they said, yeah, he's the guy that you had this up. They decided on him and Trump fired him from that job. Uh, that was one of the scariest things that happened last week in the middle of you know, complete factual errors and other things that were said is that if there is not oversight over this money, This process will not go well because you've got to know that someone smart is looking over your shoulder and making sure that money is going out and it's spent right. You combine that with the threat to our democracy right now, uh, there is a reason that some of us are looking not just at the moment of, yes, get the testing out, yes, get the protective equipment out, but we also have to look over the horizon to let's make sure this money is spent well so it actually helps our economy so that We can have a vast majority of people back to work by next year. Let's make sure we have a functioning democracy. And those are the things that I'm focused on.
1: Thank you very much. I know you have to run to your next appointment. Uh, It was great to have you. Mr. Mondale, do you want to share a parting word?
3: Thank you, Amy, for everything. Uh, I'm with you all the way.
2: Uh, Well, thank you so much, Mr. Vice President. Just say stay safe. I know you're doing all your, I'm sure in your Scandinavian ways that social distancing is okay with you. Hey, um, I'm,
3: I'm very good at it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, but we all love you very much. And i um, just so glad that I didn't know you were going to be on this call. I know you've done these events before with Professor Jacobs, and it's just an honor to have you on. So thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Thank you Amy. thank you. Thank you very much, Senator Klobuchar. Thank you. We've got a second half here, so don't go anywhere. Um, I want to welcome, um, I welcome uh, Jennifer Lawless um, to our conversation. Uh, Jennifer Lawless is a professor at the University of Virginia. She's an expert, she's a political scientist. And she's an expert in um, women and elections. And she'll be joining the conversation with Vice President Mondale, uh, both on what we heard from um, uh, Senator Klobuchar, as well as we're picking up your questions. If you'd like to ask questions, there is a feature at the bottom of your screen. If you move your cursor down there, you'll see Q&A. Put your questions there. We're going to get to as many as we possibly can. Um, Jennifer Lawless, thank you for joining
4: us. Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, Let me just start off with what did you hear that struck you as interesting?
4: Well, I think the biggest thing was the fact that it's now 2020, and since 1984, we've been pushing as a country to see whether we can actually have a woman either as vice president or president, and we seem to be coming up short. The good news about 2020, of course, is that Joe Biden has pledged to put a woman on the ticket. So if he wins this election, that glass ceiling will finally be cracked. But it's just striking to me that decades after the Mondale-Ferraro ticket, we're still having the same kinds of conversations.
1: Do you think the reason for that uh, has something to do with the attitudes towards women, what they're capable of, um, their skill set, their suitability? Is there something that voters or maybe the process is doing that's treating male presidential candidates differently from female candidates?
4: Well the good news is that if you look beyond the presidency there doesn't seem to be any systematic bias against female candidates. There are always examples of sexism and gender bias and discrimination but systematically when women run for office they are just as likely as to win, they raise just as much money, even media coverage nowadays looks very similar. The presidential level is a little bit different because we have such a wide media environment. You have so many people following what's going on. And it's also the highest position in the land. The problem in identifying whether it's explicit sexism or not is that we've still had so few women in this position that it's difficult to draw broad conclusions. So when we look at 2016, for example, we don't really know whether Hillary Clinton's loss had more to do with sexism or what I call Clintonism, which is that she was in the public eye for a quarter of a century. Many people didn't like her or had qualms about her, not necessarily because she was a woman, but because of other factors. So it's really hard to know. I take solace in knowing, however, that she did receive more votes than Donald Trump. So at least in terms of the American public, people are clearly willing to cast ballots for a female presidential candidate.
1: Senator Klobuchar said with regards to Pete Buttigieg's candidate that no woman would have been allowed on the stage if they had his experience, meaning experience of being a mayor uh, who received, you know, about 11,000 votes. Is that a fair criticism?
4: Oh, I would say that no woman would have the audacity to put herself on the stage. So I don't know that it's a matter of the voters would have said, absolutely not. This is terrible. We're not going to give you the level of support required to have a space on that stage. I think that women tend to hold themselves to a higher standard. We know that's the case when they think about running for office in the first place. A man who doesn't think he's qualified to run for office still has a significant shot of throwing his hat into the ring for local or state positions. Women just don't do that. And so if women are holding themselves to a higher standard, it's not that surprising that the women on the stage often seemed a bit more credentialed and qualified than some of the men.
1: There was um, some concern during the, um, the Democratic presidential contest that the idea of electability was being defined in a way and framed in a way that wasn't fair to women. Um, does that make sense to you?
4: So I'm one of these political scientists that hates the word electability because I think it means to people whatever they want to justify supporting the candidate they like in the first place. And so in this particular case, electability was seen as who could defeat Donald Trump and the basic juxtaposition for all of these candidates was Donald Trump in 2016. So I think people looked around and said, well, you know, Hillary Clinton had a tough time and he really was very unfair to her. And as a result, we need the opposite of Hillary Clinton. So we certainly cannot have a woman. I'm not sure that those voters wouldn't have come up with another reason to support their candidate, um, not gender related. It's just one of these situations where people think that the candidate they are supporting is the one who's the most likely to win the election. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Okay. Um, There were, of course, organizations and people uh, who are quite prominent um, who uh, have taken a position supporting women for president. Um, Emily's List being one, they didn't endorse uh, until a few days before really the end of the process. Hillary Rodham Clinton was silent in terms of her endorsement. Did that strike you as a bit odd that, that at least the kind of firepower from um, uh, areas that might have supported the president, a female uh, presidential candidate did not um, come forward? Uh,
4: Not particularly. There were a couple of factors at play. The first is the 2020 presidential election is different, I think, than previous presidential elections in that most organized interest groups, most political elites, and even voters themselves, have placed defeating Donald Trump at the top of the list when it comes to their goals. And so even an organization like EMILY's List that supports pro-choice female candidates, and there were certainly pro-choice female candidates on that stage, decided, and people like Hillary Clinton have probably decided as well, that the most important thing they can do is support the eventual nominee without having their words used against them so by supporting any of these other women in the process if that person hadn't ultimately emerged as the nominee that could potentially fracture support or lead to criticism of the eventual nominee so i just think the dynamics this time around were a little bit different remember in 2004 i think Um, the National Organization for Women supported and endorsed early on Carol Mosley Braun, who had a very low chance of winning the nomination. So I think it really just shows that this cycle, things are a little bit different.
1: We have a number of questions. and I've been picking up some of them. Uh, Here's one. Um, Other countries have been more successful with electing or appointing or nominating women. Is there something specific to America that has made this harder?
4: The biggest difference between the United States and a lot of the nations, the more than 70 actually, who have a higher percentage of women in the national legislature or as heads of state, are that we don't have any quotas and we don't have a very, very entrepreneurial candidate emergence process, which means that a person has to decide to run for office and build a campaign infrastructure all on his or her own. And that means raising money, developing supporters. And those are backgrounds, qualifications, and credentials that men still have an advantage on. So that's part of it. The other piece of this is that the best way to identify a credible candidate is to look at somebody who's already held office. So when we're thinking about presidential candidates, we're looking at governors and we're looking at senators and members of Congress. When we're thinking about congressional candidates, we look to state legislatures, mayors, city councilors. And across the board, women remain significantly underrepresented in all of those positions. So while the be- although the bench is now becoming a little bit more occupied, and although we have more women running, they're still far from even 40% of the potential candidates out there when we think quickly about who might be president.
1: Um, Jennifer Lawless, thank you for joining us, University of Virginia. Let's turn to the question of does it matter to voters if a woman is on the ticket with Joe Biden? What what do we know about the impact of having a woman as a candidate on the behavior of voters?
4: The evidence is mixed. At the congressional level and for some high-profile Senate races, there's evidence to suggest that when there's a female candidate that can drive up enthusiasm and knowledge about a race, it doesn't disproportionately send women to the polls, but it does up voter turnout. And given that this would be on the Democratic side of the aisle, it would increase voter turnout among Democrats, which would ultimately help the ticket. There's other evidence to suggest that it doesn't really matter in terms of the outcome, but it does matter in terms of sending a signal to the broader populace that this party actually embraces the values that it has said it embraces. And when you have a Democratic party where you had all these candidates on the stage, represented diverse backgrounds, I think it's important this time around to have a ticket that somehow reflects that so that voters don't feel like they've been disregarded or dismissed, even if their candidate didn't become the, president, the presidential candidate on the top of the ticket.
1: Uh, we've got um, a question here about Nikki Haley. This is a rumor that uh, Donald Trump would drop um, uh, Vice President Pence and instead uh, bring Nikki Haley on his ticket for 2020 I don't frankly know if that's true or not, but let's just speculate about it for a second. Just taking what you just said, would it be a smart political move by Donald Trump to have a woman on the ticket, particularly someone who's prominent and broadly respected like Nikki Haley?
4: I don't think it matters. And the reason I don't think it matters is twofold. First, voters are, especially in presidential elections, almost always going to vote for the candidate who shares their party identification. This has been the case over time. So even in 2016 when both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton had the most unfavorable ratings among their co-partisans as any presidential candidates ever had, nine out of ten Democrats still supported Clinton and nine out of ten Republicans still supported Trump. So people don't cross party lines or very few of them do. When it comes to independence, That's where the movement matters. And it's hard to imagine, given how everybody understands quite clearly the way that Donald Trump manages the presidency, that putting Nikki Haley on the ticket would in some way fundamentally change his values or his positions or his rhetoric or his style. So it's unlikely that those independents who voted for Trump the last time around, who are now thinking about Biden, would be pulled back to Trump simply because there was a woman on the ticket. The upside could be generating enthusiasm among Republican women who might otherwise stay home.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Mondale. Can I bring you back on? Well, I wanted, yeah,
3: I wanted to ask a question of Jennifer, if I might. Had there been any surveys or polls of public views about having? a strong woman for president. Uh, all those words are important to me. I mean, I think the public has accepted the, the value and the possibilities of women in uh, state and in congressional offices. I think where the hangup is, is in the uh, presidential and vice presidential office. Why I don't know, but in, and I'm not sure I'm writing this, but I, I certainly sensed a reluctance to vote for Geraldine. I, a reluctance that I thought I saw with Amy, uh, or, pardon me, with uh, the with our candidate for president last time, Hillary Clinton. Um, and um, I just wanted to know whether there's been any kind of uh, sophisticated testing of the public on that issue.
4: There have. So there have been two sets of questions. The first, Gallup has actually asked now for 50 or 60 years, and the question is terrible. It's, would you be willing to vote for a woman if your party nominated her and she were otherwise qualified for the job? So in order to say no to that, you basically have to be a card-carrying sexist Because who's willing to cross party lines. Um, But, you know, in the 1960s and the 1970s, you still had a third of people saying, yeah, no, I'm not going to vote for that woman. Over time, that has trended upward. By the 1980s, we were at about 75 or 80 percent of people saying they were willing to support a female presidential candidate. And now that number is about 95 or 96 percent. There's obviously a social desirability component where people know that if they say no to that, they seem sexist. So there's this other question that pollsters ask also, which is, do you think your friends and neighbors would be willing to vote for a female presidential candidate? And there, only about 50% of people say yes. So I think you're exactly right, that there is this reluctance. People are unwilling to admit that they have that sense because they think it's unappealing and wrong, but they are likely to assume that people around them won't vote for a woman. Because they assume that people around them won't vote for a woman, that then plays into their own definition of electability. And as a result, they often wind up not voting for the female presidential candidate because they don't think that she's electable.
1: So um, Jennifer Lawless, um, what you're saying, I think, is that the uh, most politic way uh, or easiest path to bring a, a woman into the White House is the one that Walter Mondale started in 84 which was the vice presidential candidate. John McCain uh, brought Sarah Palin onto the ticket, and now Joe Biden is going to select the woman. And the idea here would be bring a woman into the White House as a vice president, country would get used to her, they would become presumably uh, comfortable, confident in that person, and then they might have a shot at running for president themselves. Is that, does that scenario sound maybe more politically uh, feasible?
4: That's the scenario I think is the most likely path to a female president. Um, The only alternative would be if Donald Trump wins re-election in 2020, and then both parties nominate a woman in 2024. So that, at that point, takes gender out of the equation entirely, and the nation's going to be stuck with a female presidential candidate. You can imagine many on the Democratic side who are planning to run in that scenario, and Nikki Haley and others who would have a very good chance at garnering the nomination for the GOP.
1: Uh, Mr. Mondale, I want to see if I get you back on the phone again. Thank you. Um, I've got a question here that I've been wondering about, and um, you're really the ideal person to ask it. We've got so much going on uh, this year in terms of the presidential election that I would say falls in the disaster category. Uh, The coronavirus has unleashed. you know, a definitely cloud over us. You've got our um, economy in a, in a tailspin. You've got our healthcare system, you know, on the cusp of collapsing and, and on and on. Have you seen an election, at least in, in your lifetime, that has been as um, kind of haunted by these sort of mega uh, tragedies and controversies and, and crises?
3: I would say I haven't seen this array of deep problems confronting the American electorate, uh, in a presidential election. Um, but, um, we shall see, as the president liked to say. I think a lot of this, some of this may shake out. Uh, these disputes around, uh, absentee ballot I find ridiculous. You've you got to have a good absentee balance. but there, there's no, there should be no generic objection to the absentee ballot, particularly when our nation is being uh, uh, paralyzed by this coronavirus. Um, I'll leave it there.
1: Yeah. Well, I, 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 I mean, the only period I can think of that comes close to this uh, is the one you lived through and was, you were quite involved in, namely the Vietnam War and the, the protests and then the Watergate episode, kind of this, you really felt like the foundations of the country were cracking. Um, this seems, you know, more encompassing in a way because it's hitting people, you know, in our, in our homes and in our families.
3: Yes, I, I, um, I'm an old optimist on this stuff. I've been through so much uh, in a public position and I've seen it sort out. I've, I've seen the public sort of rise to the occasion when higher challenges are around. They, the Americans love their democracy they don't. They don't want to lose it. They don't. They're not going to let anybody take it away from them. They're going to. They're going to judge candidates by their commitment to democracy and be influenced by that heavily. Uh, and so, basically, put me down as uh, one who thinks that the country can work its way through all these problems. Uh, Maybe there's one I haven't seen yet that they can't handle. So I don't want to sound cocky or certain. But uh, thus far, the American people have done very well with these issues.
1: Thank you. Um, Jennifer Lawless, would you expect uh, a drop in turnout in 2020, just given what you know today?
4: I mean, I I think a lot of it comes down to What the election processes look like between now and November, so I would have had the coronavirus not happened expected record turnout in 2020 given what we saw in 2018 and also given what we saw in the 2017 and 2019 off year state elections. Now we're actually asking people to put their right to vote um, to the test where it could compromise their health. And if we are not in a position where absentee ballots are available, where early voting is available, and where we've definitely not only flattened the curve, but have seen a substantial reduction in the probability of a second wave of this virus in the fall, um, you know, then I think turnout will be high. Otherwise, it's really an unknown. You know, it's hard enough to get people to vote and to get them to know that the stakes matter so much. We've never before had to do that where it's also been asking them to put their own health on the line.
1: Yeah, and you went through quite a list there of um, conditions that would have to be met to have high turnout. Let's start with the one that Senator Klobuchar has been working on, and Republicans. This is not a partisan issue, despite what the president said, um, which is vote by mail or vote by home. Um, There are Republican states that do quite a bit of uh, vote by mail. And the question, at least in Washington, that I have for you, Jennifer Lawless, is this. The coronavirus has most publicly hit Democratic areas so far, New York being the primary one. And if you're sitting in the South uh, in a town, maybe your reaction is, "Okay, well, that's New York. But now, at least in the last week, we're starting to see the coronavirus spread out. We're starting to see concentrations of illness um, in southern towns, and some places, the intensity that is the number of people who are ill to the population is higher than in New York and actually other places of the world. Um, Do you think as that reality begins to set in on Washington that we might see a broader coalition of Democrats and Republicans looking at vote by mail and other ways to uh, make elections both safe and vigorous?
4: I do, but I should also note that I'm actually in New York. I'm with my parents in New York and have been for the last few weeks, and I'm going to be here for the long haul. Um, And so I do look at the Charlottesville newspaper every day. I look at what's going on in Charlottesville and in and around the university. And there's been a clear shift in terms of the efforts that a lot of these places that are not epicenters right now are taking as the virus becomes more and more real to them. And so I would not be surprised if over the course of the next few weeks or even months, there is a shift. The question is, is it going to be too late? And that's what becomes so tricky when you have a president and a highly polarized Congress and a pretty polarized public trying to make this seem like it's a partisan issue. Um, By the time everybody's on board, it may be too difficult to change the rules and the laws governing what actually happens in November.
1: As you know, one of the um, pockets of voters who, overall, not, not entirely, but the, the kind of balance, uh, who support Republicans are seniors, 65 and older. Tends to be, not uniformly, but tends to be a good pocket of support for Republicans. And as you start thinking about some of the swing states that can be fought over, like Florida, you can see the point. The reality of seniors, who are in a high-risk group, turning out to vote in a pandemic, is that going to sink in with Republicans and say, hey, this is not about Democrats getting away with something. This is about having a fair shot to get our voters out to the polls.
4: I think it's an open question. I mean, the person who's most likely to be able to take the lead on an issue like that is the governor of Florida, who's also been incredibly reluctant to close the beaches. So, you know, I I think that all of this is um, grounded in a broader discussion about the extent to which both parties are willing to move away from some of their traditional positions on issues of voting and access to ensure that we have a presidential election that's as fair and inclusive as it can be at a time when the outside conditions are doing everything they possibly can to keep that from happening.
1: There's a question here from um, uh, one of our viewers. Uh, how will the pandemic influence public opinion and policy around health care?
4: It's interesting. You know, when Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden had their last debate. It seemed somewhat tone deaf to me that Sanders was talking about how this entire thing highlights the importance of Medicare for all. Because it seemed like we were at a point where people just wanted reassurance. They weren't getting that reassurance from President Trump. And so they were looking to the Democrats to tell them that everything was going to be okay. And there could be a policy discussion and debate later. Now, I actually think that what this has done is highlight the importance of a healthcare system that can deal with conditions that we never thought we would have to endure. And as a result, I think it's going to turn public opinion, especially among people who may have been reticent to say that the government should interfere in their health care, toward Medicare for all or similar options. That actually puts Joe Biden in a better position in terms of the way that he can court and cultivate support among Bernie Sanders and his supporters.
1: This is actually one of the areas I've done a lot of research, and I generally agree with what you just said. In fact, I think if you look at what's happened, we're seeing Congress providing more support in terms of funding that is backing up the Affordable Care Act. President Trump quite publicly said he wouldn't extend the sign-up period for uh, the uh, insurance exchanges, okay? But the reality is if you're uninsured and have kind of a change of life circumstances, that's the, the key legal phrase, you can then apply for um, the uh, subsidies to get private health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. And I predict millions of Americans will actually do that. We're already starting to see uh, thousands of people doing it around the country. So at the end of this, regardless of whatever happens with single payer, I think the government's involvement in healthcare is larger and it's gonna kind of reframe the debate uh, in very significant ways. And again, this is something Republicans are starting to come on board with. Um, Mr. Mondale, we're, we're running out of time. I want to just bring you back in if I could. Um, you know, I see a lot of people, and I get this question all the time, and I'm sure you do. Uh, do you have hope for the future? Uh, there's a lot, of, you've got students who are just, you know, beside themselves with their dreams and plans that are on hold. I've got, um, you know, uh, people I know or get in touch with me who are older and just worried about. What's going to
3: happen to them? Well, the, the issue that seems to dominate that is the uh, Medicare issue, health care for senior citizens. Um, despite all the politics I hear, uh, seniors do not want Medicare tampered with. They, their lives are now dependent in part on good health care, health care availability and costs are a central part of seniors, well, of everybody's life, but of seniors' life particularly, and it drives drives, uh, our politics. I'm amazed at the number of seniors that tell me that just this, this is the issue. This is what they're worried about, and the polls sort of show show that, show that too, as far as I can tell. Seniors, everybody's voted on Medicare, but seniors are um, uh, hard over on the question. So I would say we need to keep uh, Medicare in good shape maybe medicare for all but i don't know what that means i think just keep improving it protecting it expanding it where you where you're sure it's going to work uh if you to be careful not to make mistakes with medicare it's it's so important i'm i'm sitting here 92 years of age and i, so I this is one of the issues i know what i'm talking about um, Healthcare costs are really um, awesome for senior citizens. Yeah. And um, I think we've got to be very careful about it.
1: Mr. Mondale, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're... Uh,
3: uh, thank you so much for this hour. I think wonderful. And your um, presentations, as always, are great. And, and I'm, I'm proud to be able to work with you.
1: Thank you, sir. We appreciate it. And stay well. Please stay well. I
3: will. I will. I promise.
1: Jennifer Lawless, thank you so much for joining us. Um, It's great to have you. We'll have you back soon. Um, My
4: pleasure. Thank you.
1: And I want to let everyone know that this program was recorded. Uh, We'll send out the link to it. Uh, We have upcoming events you might want to know about. Um, One of the big issues is why do Democrats and Republicans hate each other? Well, we have one of the top experts in the country, Stanford political scientist Ayengar, excuse me, Shanto Ayengar will be joining us to talk about that as well as some special guests. Uh, April 23rd, all these programs are at noon central time. Uh, Please join us for that. If you're interested in the vote by mail during a pandemic, we're gonna have one of the top experts in the country with us and that'll be May 5th. Uh, Again, noon central time. And then talk about the emerging presidential race, now that the race has settled down between Biden and Trump. We've got Vin Weber, well-known Republican strategist um, and former Minnesota congressman. He'll be joined by Anna Greenberg, who's a well-known Democratic strategist and well-respected. Uh, both are good friends of mine and will be joining us May 19th. Again, noon Central, we'll get more information out about that. Um, again, I want to thank. Um, Uh, Jennifer Lawless, Mr. Mondale, I want to particularly thank Lee Chittenden and Mike Curry, who literally are responsible for putting this together. Thank you to both of you and have a good day. Bye.